Hello and welcome to Whose Song Is It Anyway? A podcast with me, Dr. Hayley Bosher, co-hosted with Jules O'Riordan. In this week's episode, we talk to Ali Condon from PRS for Music. My name is Dr. Hayley Bosher and I'm a senior lecturer in intellectual property law. And as you know, I recently wrote a book called Copyright in the Music Industry, which was the inspiration for this podcast. Uh, my name is Jules O'Riordan. I'm a specialist music lawyer partner at Sound Advice in Talyard, which Talyard being probably the biggest music enclave of music businesses in Europe. Um, and I've also had a very long career as a DJ under the stage name Judge Jules. I've been a radio presenter, done lots and lots of other things within the music industry. Hi, I'm Ali Condon. I'm Public Affairs Manager at PRS Music. Thank you for having me. Great. Well, it's a pleasure to have you. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. And um, I think before we get started into the real nitty gritty of the copyright stuff, uh, it would be really good for those who don't know to just, if you could give us an overview of what PRS is and what it does. Of course. So uh, PRS is the Performing Rights Society. So we're a collective management organisation that looks after songwriters, composers and publishers. So we look after the underlying composition as distinct from the sound recording or from you know, a live performance. It's about the song, the underlying composition. Um, I'm not sure how technical you wanted my answer to be, but sort of just in case, our role is to administer the, the communication to the public rights and the public performance rights of PRS music members. So that's by licensing their use and then collecting and distributing the rising royalties. Um, so the communication to the public right, just to be clear on that, is where the use is effectively distribution via electronic signals, while the latter, the public performance right, is the playing or performance of music in the public. So sort of anything outside of a domestic setting. So whether that's your hairdresser or a shop, you know, sort of that public use of music and live performance, of course. And at the risk of making this sound like a job interview, what do you do there at PRF? <laughs> So as public affairs manager, I'm part of the policy and public affairs team. You know, it's kind of a throwback, but we used to call it maintaining a secure environment for copyright. So it's kind of about preserving the integrity of the rights of our members and making sure that the value of copyright is protected. Because I think, you know, I think we can all agree in recent years, um, that's been increasingly under strain as we sort of move to much more digital society. And so it's just making sure that policymakers understand what PRS is, understand how the music industry is, and understand how professional songwriters and composers can make a living. Well, that's quite an ambitious goal, I would say, <laughs> trying to get people to understand all these things. Um, so what are some of the ways that you go about doing that? So actually, um, when I started at PRS, I sort of came in with a, a dual role, and part of that was to get our members involved in what we do as public policy and public affairs team. So a lot of that is going and speaking to our members about what they're experiencing in their career, sort of, you know, where they're kind of seeing change and understanding that change and where it's coming from. Um, so that's a hugely important part. And then on the other hand, it's always looking at what government is doing and what the EU was doing and will continue to be, you know, the EU is our largest market. So, you know, it's not like we're going to just turn our back, but it's kind of horizon scanning to see where change is coming from and where change may be needed and trying to either influence or affect that change. So it's a lot of kind of going out and speaking to people and making sure that they understand whether that be 
by taking songwriters to Brussels to meet, you know, people who work in the European Commission or, you know, making sure that we go and speak to various parts of the UK government just to make sure that, you know, the voice of the songwriters, composers and publishers is heard and understood. I'm really going to throw you a nice general question um, here and ask why you think copyright is important to creatives and as a whole. Me, while copyright isn't simple, it is so simple. It protects the work of those lucky enough to be creative and to be talented and means that they are paid when others use or are benefiting from their work. And, you know, that's really important. Everything costs money, even making music, even making art or any kind of creative outlet. You know, music writers and creators not only deserve, but they need to be paid in order to actually have a career. It's that differentiation between, between being an amateur and being a professional. To be a professional, you need to be rewarded for your work. And I think, you know, it really frustrates me when people go, oh, you know, copyright's such, such, a, such a hindrance to innovation. It's simple, you can get a license for any usage. And if you're seeking to innovate and create something of your own, like, don't you want to be able to protect your creation and to benefit from it when other people are using it? You know, it's such a simple, simple equation to me that I find it so bizarre when people don't value copyright and can't see its role in society. Also, there's kind of this, this idea of consent, you know, without getting into the moral rights aspect, you know, if you create something, you should be able to say, yes, I'm happy for you to use my work for X price. Or you can say, no, actually, I, I don't want this use of my work. I, I will withhold my consent. You know, it is a question of consent. And there is kind of an element of if you can't prevent someone using your work, how can you ever maintain a value in it? It will just seep away. So another slight curveball question in relation to copyright, an essence of copyright under the, under the legislation is that it has to be original. But do you think any artistic work can ever be truly original? That's a very tough question. I did actually go through the list um, of songs on the playlist earlier on. Great way to pass some time as well. Um, you know, I, I think originality is a sliding scale. It, you know, there is no, you know, unless you invent a new instrument or a new means of vocalization, in reality, it's not going to be original in the purest sense of the word. But I think, you know, it's about being able to absorb your influences and make of them your own. And, you know, I think one of the things you sort of sent over previously was about those cases. And I think the Blurred Lines one is really interesting because, you know, it, it, it is a feel. And how can you infringe on a feel? And I think it was a really, um, for me, it was a really kind of, I don't know, it sort of made me a bit sad and annoyed because, you know, if you start to see this kind of encroachment upon feel and vibe, you know, you are going to start putting a little bit of a chill on experimentation. Yeah, you know, originality is a sliding scale. And I think it's about understanding your influence. And actually, I think it's really interesting. Ed Sheeran is a case in point in terms of sometimes he actually does go, yeah, that song very much comes from that, that one of my predecessors. And it's kind of recognising when your influence is quite sort of direct. Because I think, you know, that, as I said, it enhances the value for everyone if we're all quite open about, you know, influence. And there's a difference between influence and sampling or kind of evolving a work within your own. So, you need, so in order to, to, to have a copyrightable work, you need to be original. 
And in order to infringe a work, you need to infringe, uh, infringe a substantial proportion of the work. And over the years, there's been an, an element of debate about what that actually constitutes. And sampling brought that into the legal into the legal debate, into the courtrooms, indeed, uh, both sides of the Atlantic and indeed globally. Do you have an opinion on at what stage, you know, if I, if I sample, for example, a, a kick drum, am I sampling, am I plagiarizing, or am I able to be uh, wholly creative and original? I was about to say that I'm not a judge, but then it sounded too much like a pun. <laughs> Do you know, I, I, I don't know, and I think there is a question of scale within that, and I think actually, you know, as you, you, you sort of see this drive towards music being a bit shorter and a bit kind of more TikTok ready. And, you know, maybe at some point there will be such a brief song that if you do take such a tiny part. But I think it is a question of scale and it's a question of the contribution. But then I'm not a judge. So I don't want to, um, I don't want to. You know, because most of these decisions are purely adjudicated upon by judges, but it's the expert witnesses and their testimonies that leads to the, you know, in those few cases that have actually reached the courts, it's the expert witnesses whose opinions have actually uh, swayed the decisions of the judges. And I think you would be more than qualified to be an expert witness. That, that's very kind, but I don't have a good ear. I'm, I'm sadly one of those people in the music industry who brings, brings zero talent in terms of musical terms. I think in the same way that I could be an expert, I think it's very difficult to listen to someone and say, yes, that's, that's where that came from. But actually, do you know what? Let's not criticise musicologists in case one day I, I need one. Um, I work, in my legal practice, I work with them a lot, actually. And they're very, it's very interesting. It's a kind of combination of science being a musician. So the science is almost comparing two scores to a piece of music and seeing the extent to which the kind of signature and the notes sort of tally together between work A and work B. And then there's the kind of, there's almost the, uh, the being a musician and just feeling the vibe, but because you've got that qualification to be a court appointed expert, you can actually just comment upon the general feeling of something in a, in a less scientific way. I, yeah, and I think that's the thing. It's kind of like, I almost feel like they should just kind of, when, when you have a jury of your peers, in that context, it should be a jury of songwriters and composers because... I couldn't, you know, I, I, as, a, as someone who can't write music, I don't think I'd really be capable of understanding the process well enough. And I think it's kind of, you know, I think, and I, I mentioned the Blur Lines one, the Blurred Lines case, and I remember reading about some of the concerns that people had in this area. And it's sort of, it's really difficult to accept that, you know, a judge who isn't going to be an expert in music and a jury who aren't experts in music. And then you have one or two experts who are, are, are there to present a case. You know, that's, that's always going to be the way. It's such a difficult one. But I should probably just point out that we don't have juries in civil, uh, civil trials here in the UK. That's yeah, of course. But I sort of, it's because in America, I, yeah. Yeah, I always use the blurred lines as my well, kind of go-to visualisation. You know, well, it's absolutely relevant because if any, any court decision in the biggest music market in the world... Uh, i.e. the US, is going to have an implication on the rest of the world, irrespective of whether it's binding law in the rest of the world. I was just going to say um, about the musicologists, I find it, it's a really interesting kind of interplay, though, because you're right, the musicologist has the music expertise and they can tell you what instrument the song was made on and all this, like, it's amazing to me, it's mind-blowing. But, you know, 
they don't know the law. And I've seen even in dispositions, like they ask the musicologist, when you say this song sounds substantially like this other song, do you know what substantial part from a copyright perspective means? And they answered no. And so sometimes just because two songs sound the same doesn't mean that there's copyright infringement because that's not the test for copyright infringement. As Jules said, it's about taking a substantial part, which is a question of the if you have taken the original part. And so there's all these like legal questions. And I think it's possible to have two songs that sound the same. For example, copyright is all about stopping someone from copying the work. And if you had never heard of the other song before and you could just guarantee that person never heard that song before, maybe it wasn't released first, then it could be a coincidence that they sound exactly the same. And so it's not always a question of the music, it's also a question of the law. Yeah, and I think that's one of the really problematic parts. You sort of need to be a very, you need to be a very holistic expert to really kind of give an opinion on it. And I think, you know, it is, it's interesting to see how many cases of, you know, I think the rate of cases has really kind of ramped up in recent years. And I don't know whether that's just because a natural effect of music being much more available and the industry being much more global, but it's just sort of, it sort of feels like, you know, every other week there's a new case to keep an eye on. Some of them are artists and you kind of think, with all due respect to them, how have they heard your work? Yeah, I mean, that's one of the questions that really annoys me about the lots of these cases, because the question of whether you've heard the work or not is a really low threshold. And on some of the recent big US cases, like the Katy Perry one, they're like, if you have X number of YouTube views, probably they heard it. And you're like, well, not when you think about the grand scale of YouTube. So that that does frustrate me. Um, but Jules, I just want to ask you, because you mentioned that you work a lot with musicology reports and musicologists, and Ali, you just said about the whole, like, more and more cases. Do, would you say that you're using musicology reports more now? Um, no, I've always, always used them, and they're used more outside of um, litigation, I would say, than they're used within litigation. They're used, if you like, as a shield to prevent the party, uh, the party on the other side um, from having a go, for want of a better description, um, pre- preemptively. Um, so, of course, um, I mean, I work with one very high-profile musicologist on a very regular basis. At the first port of call, if there's any notion that what somebody might be infringing is to get on the phone to him, get his opinion, because he's so valuable and so respected that you almost want to um, take him out the game, if you like, and have him on your side. Um, but I, you mentioned, he, I mean, he certainly does know a lot about the law. Um, he's, whilst he doesn't purport to be a lawyer or a legal expert, he understands the law. You know, it's his, it's his pet subject. I mean, understanding the context in which you're the advice, the, the specialist expert opinion you're being provided. Um, it would be mad, really, not to want to know about the kind of legal background to it all. I suppose without that understanding, he, he would sort of fall by the wayside because he wouldn't as effective in his role so it does make sense I suppose yeah and I guess also the more if he's doing it frequently and he's involved then he's going to pick up the law stuff along the way um, it's the cutest story how the uh, musicologist became part of copyright litigation actually it's to do with this case I'll try and remember it off the top of my head but it's in the playlist uh, and it's the Chariots of Fire song. It was copied, it, there was a copy called City of Violets, and it was all to do with Clark's, the shoe 
shop wanted to uh, use the song in their advert, but it was already being used for a car advert. And so um, they went to a different record label and got a different song that sounded just like it. And when the advert aired, they got sued. And um, the story goes that they had this young apprentice come along and wanted to get involved in the case. And he was actually a composer. and didn't have any legal background. And they let him on the case. And eventually they let him in the courtroom and give evidence. And he was the first time that that happened and it was taken seriously. And the judge relied on his evidence when they made the decision. And that paved the way for now. Oh. And as you say, like now musicology is really important in copyright litigation and also as you say Jules like actually preempting and decision making before it even gets that far but yeah I love that story it just sounds like a fairy tale doesn't it like this random apprentice stumbles upon the case yeah it's not surprising because in any civil litigation yeah, both sides would would rely on expert witnesses I mean they're the essence of you know whether you're arguing about widgets or whether you're arguing about music you need experts uh, in order to, to add kind of weight uh, and substantiation to what is put before the judge. Um, so, yeah, it's surprising to hear that it hasn't uh, always been happening since the, I don't know, since the rock and roll began. Um. Sally, let's, let's sort of, you know, move, move the copyright discussion on a little bit and ask you what your experience of dealing with artists and PRS members are in terms of their understanding of kind of copyright law and what it represents and indeed that whether there's in the extent to which they're interested in it as a as a standalone subject you know, it's, it's it's definitely mixed in terms of you know i definitely meet a wide variety as you said like some are super interested really engaged really proactively engaged with the principles that unpin their rights you know really sort of want to understand but Oftentimes they will kind of say, now that I'm getting older. So I think there is an element of, you know, when you're a young writer or a young artist and, you know, you're pursuing your career and you're trying to build your career, those details aren't necessarily at the forefront of your mind. You know, you're, you're, you're out there sort of hustling to build a career and sort of start to see your copyright, even though you're unaware of it, gain some traction. Um, you know, it's a bit like your car. You don't really care how it works most of the time until something goes wrong or you reach a point where you know you have a really nice car and you want to understand it because it's kind of like a piece of art you know I think there's that kind of gap in desire to know um, and I think oftentimes people will rely on their lawyer or their accountant and kind of think somebody will take care of this for me and I you know that's fine oftentimes that's great but it does cost you money and also, you're never really going to understand what your statement is about or sort of why things are the way they are if you don't engage with your rights. Um, so there's a real kind of age and point in your career difference when it comes to engagement with rights. That said, I, will, I have also met some young songwriters who were really fantastically engaged. And, you know, um, part of my role at PRS has always been to get our members involved in what we do in terms of policy and public affairs work. And it's great to have young writers involved because oftentimes, you know, when you go to events like political and policy events, it's, it's most people are of a certain age. So when you have someone who's at the start of their career involved and wanting to talk about their rights and wanting to engage in that, it's so compelling for the people who are making the decisions because they also see that this is affecting their future. It's not coming from the perspective of 
I've had a great career because of copyright. It's like, I won't have a career unless you don't, unless you sort of protect and preserve copyright. It's, it's quite an interesting one because um, for me as a lawyer, as a specialist music lawyer, but with an artist, artistic background, slightly less relevant to PRS because writers have uh, a default right to 50% of their income. But I guess they don't have a, necessarily have a, well, they don't have a default right to the, to the publisher's share of their income unless they have all of their rights. So, I mean, I'm forever telling my, uh, my clients who are generally significantly younger than me, my artist clients, uh, about my story, which is that I was lucky enough with, uh, with recordings and with publishing to kind of get rights back. And after a rights period of 10 or 15 years, back they come. Suddenly you can make a lot more money out of them, uh, especially with, with recordings, actually, where you can put stuff on, set on Spotify and uh, you can distribute stuff yourself if you've got a bit of a catalogue that people are familiar with. And you, you can almost see some of their eyes rolling back because the thought, if you can think in more than a five-year plan when you're in your kind of 20s or even your 30s, you're a better person than me. I certainly couldn't. But, but now I'm, uh, dare I say, significantly older than that and I can look back on the value of having rights and, and actually fighting to, to only give those rights away in the first instance for a short period of time um, it, it um, takes on more relevance. And I, and, and I think that I've actually persuaded a lot more artists that I represent than otherwise would ever have listened because I can tell it from such a personal perspective. I think that's a really good point because I think it's really difficult to get your rights back once you've given them away in whatever context. And I think, you know, it's one of those things I have, and this is mostly a question I sort of have with uh, media composers. You know, you can challenge a contract that's put in front of you. you the, the worst thing that can happen is they say no to your kind of counter negotiation. That's the worst that can happen. But if you don't ask, you might 50 years down the line be kicking yourself because you're not really getting the bulk of the money from your work or you can't control it. Because it's, it's not, copyright isn't a particularly sexy topic when you're young. But then, as you know, as I said, as you get older, you suddenly realise actually hanging on to those rights is how, how I'm going to, you know, I've, heard, I've once had a composer describe it to me as, you know, it's, it's my wage, it's my mortgage, it's my pension. My rights are everything that I have. And I think that's one of those things that really resonates when you do explain it to people. You know, you might not be in a position today to feel that it's important, but, you know, it, you're probably not paying into a pension. Again, not a particularly, you know, fun and exciting conversation, but you're probably not paying into a pension. So by protecting your rights and sort of maintaining that respect for your rights, hopefully you will still be generating income because you don't want to see, let that value seep away. I once had a conversation, I won't say who it was, I, I couldn't really testify to like where, how he was doing, but he was kind of trying to build his own career independently. And I said to him, are you registering your works and so forth and so on? He's like, no, 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 I'm holding them all back until, you know, I reach X, Y, Z point. And I was like, but you, you know, you could be getting paid like now, but you know, I don't know how successful he was, but he was paying, playing lots of gigs. He was touring. You know, he was definitely kind of working within his scene and he couldn't fathom the idea that he could be making money now. I mean, on this, yeah, I mean the week we, we're recording this, um, within the last seven days, Bob Dylan and Stevie Nicks both sold catalogues uh, in the ten, well, in the hundreds of millions in the case of Bob Dylan and the tens of millions in the case of Stevie Nicks. And whilst most songwriters won't have a catalogue of the quality of Fleetwood Mac and kind of Bob Dylan, 
Um, nevertheless, if you've even got one or two so-called evergreen copyrights, you know, you've got one or two hit records that generate a bit of radio play, then those rights are effectively a pension. And it, it's almost like pension is the least sexy word you can, you want to turn somebody off if aged under 45. The, the P word does it better than anything. Um, but the reality is that is what a set of rights really are. And, um, you know, sometimes when you see these big deals in the media that permeate beyond the, the kind of music press and into the mainstream media, and I know that um, Bob Dylan thing did, because I, I was interviewed by the Daily Telegraph for it, um, it, it's good. It's good because it makes people realise just how important copyrights are in the in the long term. You know, it's it, it's difficult because, as, as we've said, it's not kind of the most obvious subject for young people. You, you know, young writers and young creators because it's not something that's very apparent to them. You know, like, oh no, I'll go and I'll get a record deal and it'll be great and I'll do this and I'll tour and my life will be amazing. And it's one of those things where it, it sounds like such a kind of like downer to be like but have you thought about your rights? And it's quite interesting, you know, when I've been kind of getting writers involved in, um, as I said, the work we do, you know, policy and public affairs stuff and coming talking to government, some of the younger ones will kind of be like, I'm not really sure it goes with my brand. One, it's, it's never public, you know, this is all sort of like direct conversations. We're not going to pop you on the front of Daily Mail. But it's really interesting because like, it is your brand. If you, if without copyright, you're not going to have a career. You're never going to be a professional writer or a professional performer without copyright. So, you know, to kind of cast it aside so casually is, it's bizarre. That is really quite horrifying to hear that. <laughs> that's, what, that's shocking. Well, I hope that we could, this piece will maybe help people to understand why it is part of their brand and why it is, um, so important as you know you've seen in my book i spent the whole first chapter on this being like please care about this i promise it's important to you <laughs> um, it can be something as simple as you know like it sounds really silly but oftentimes you know when we're sort of influencing policy change let's say it does come down to things like being willing to put your name on a, on a kind of a um, petition or to respond really briefly to a consultation and just kind of say this is my experience of being a writer. This is why copyright matters. And this is why we need a change or we don't need a change. And I think it's sort of, sometimes it's really easy to just put some support behind your rights once you know just how important they are. Well, Ali, we're, we're recording this at a time when there's still considerable uncertainty around Brexit. And I suspect in relation to the question I was about to ask you, the uncertainty will continue for some time. But um, Tell us a bit more about the European or the EU copyright directive and its impact on uh, the sort of copyrights that you're looking after. From a PRS perspective, the Article 17 is conceived to rectify the imbalance in the digital market for music, you know, and for all creative works, actually. It, it's about clarifying that online platforms are liable for the use of protected works on their service. Because to date, you know, the, the imbalance kind of has its root in um, the existing legal framework, you know, specifically Article 14 of the e-commerce directive. Um, you know, it's, sorry, also known as safe harbour or uh, the hosting defence, depending on uh, your preference. Um, this basically enables platforms to kind of limit their liability or in some cases deny it entirely, um, which means that rights holders either don't get paid adequately or maybe they don't get paid at all. The whole point of Article 17 of the Copyright Directive was about making sure that rights holders are on a better footing when 
negotiating with these services so that rather than sort of it being an imbalanced negotiation where they can kind of walk away by saying, well, we're not liable under law anyway, to this meaning that they actually are compelled, that, you know, there is no escape from having to seek the correct authorizations. And that means getting a license from right holders. It just empowers the rights holders more effectively than previous legislation. Um, I also think we maybe people listening to the podcast won't also actually know what Article 17 is or what the safe harbour is. So just to kind of like go a bit more into detail on those points. Um, so Article 17 of the Copyright Directive basically applies a liability to platforms such as YouTube, you would say. Uh, where they were previously protected under a rule which we refer to as the safe harbour, which is how they do things like content ID, right? So the rights holder can upload to content ID. And because, so by doing that, they benefit from the safe harbour, but Article 17 would would have, would have removed that. Is, that. is that how you see it? So I think the way safe harbour worked, it basically gave them an out by, you know, in, in very simple terms, they could say that if they were unaware of the work being on their service, until such point as they were made aware of that, they weren't liable. And then if they were made aware of it, as long as they acted quickly to take down their work, you know, they could say, okay, we're not liable for its exploitation on our service. But, you know, there's lots of problems within that, um, you know, to point out an obvious one, what does acting quickly mean? And another one that I think, you know, I will say, sorry, just Article 17 isn't perfect. So, you know, it doesn't fix all of the problems that might come up in the course of this, It's but it's a step forward. Um, so basically it just meant that they could kind of turn a blind eye, in fact, incentivize the turning of a blind eye to the uploading of copyright protected works that they didn't have licenses for. You know, they could literally say, oh, we don't know it's there, until you tell us and then you know that's such a burden on rights holders you know it's incredibly costly i remember and it's very annoying because i can't actually refine this paper but there was a paper written a few years ago and it was i think it was universal um had tried to keep down the works of one of their major artists this would be terrible if it's not universal i can't i can't find the source they tried to keep down the works of just one of their artists from youtube and they invested huge amounts of money and huge amounts of like per, like people power and they couldn't do it. It's just impossible because the way the system worked, if I notified you and said, I want that taken down, that's mine, you're not authorised to use it. Well, someone else, you could just upload it again or you could challenge it. And we wrote that it's a whole sort of other conversation about the way the sort of um, contesting a copyright challenge worked. You know, the videos just pop up, pop up, pop up over and over again. And it's sort of, it's impossible. You, you know, I remember it being described as a whack-a-mole. You know, and it, it's just such a burden on rights holders. It's impossible to, you know, it's impossible to police the internet as a, you know, as an independent user. Um, so you mentioned content ID and I'll, I'll confess I'm not, you know, I think um, it's well known that content ID is, is a proprietary system um, by which YouTube identifies works which are in its um which are uploaded as you said by um various uh rights holders but you know nobody really knows the intricacies of it and sort of what the parameters for a match are um so you know it's quite a it's quite a secretive system you know it's techn technology um but the way content id worked was it was again you know the rights holder still had to have uploaded it it wasn't sort of 
this cure-all and it was really curious because oftentimes you'd hear it like described as the best system in the world but then on the other hand you know they would also say that oh it doesn't you know it's not perfect when it suited them so I think it's I think the key thing about the e-commerce directive that you always have to remember is it was written 20 years ago you know YouTube I think was created in 2005 you know how could you have imagined that something that didn't exist yet would soon become the primary mode of exploitation because you know they can say they're not a music service we can say it's a video service but it is like if you speak to anyone today and then regardless of age if you just want to check something out you probably go to youtube especially because you're now sitting at home on your laptop most of the day um, so it's really important to kind of just think about that context when we think about article 17 i think so just to kind of draw that sort of together what would you say would have been the impact of article 17 had the uk decided to implement it so i will just say on a on a positive note um you know uk uk creators will still benefit from the enhanced protections in the remaining 27 uh member states and actually on a more optimistic note, um, you know, so many countries were watching the copyright directive progress. Um, and so I think, you know, they were watching with a view to carrying out similar kind of studies and reforms in their own territories. So hopefully you might longer term see those changes. But realistically, we knew from quite early on that the copyright directive, you know, if the stars didn't align in time, we wouldn't see uh, the UK government compelled to implement the directive. You know, a, a government in the midst of Brexit is never going to decide to implement a UK directive um, by choice, um, which is very unfortunate. To my current knowledge, the UK have, the government have said that they won't implement the uh, Digital Single Market Copyright Directive at this moment in time, although there is, of course, the ongoing inquiry. And so they might implement some alternative measure. But... Article 17, as it stands, will not be implemented into UK law. So I was wondering, because you were talking about the goal uh, that it was trying to achieve um, to kind of overcome the value gap, as we kind of term it, with YouTube, like, what do you think the impact will be of not implementing Article 17 into the UK? It's really difficult to say what the impact might be, just on the basis that, you know, we have an existing legislative framework. We do already licence um youtube and other services are available um who also have benefited from the hosting defense um so i don't know if there'll be a necessarily a, an immediate impact and i think as you mentioned you know the the select committee inquiry does ask question a specific question about the copyright directive and about article 17. so i think on a kind of a positive spin is that you know this is actually a real opportunity for the uk government you know, Article 17 is finely balanced. It was two years of blood, sweat and tears negotiation in Brussels. Um, you know, but it isn't perfect. Um, legislation obviously rarely is. But by not being tied to that legislation, which is, as I said, very finely balanced, there is the opportunity for the UK government to go above and beyond and kind of rectify some of the more... Um, of, of rectify some of the less effective parts of um, the EU legislation and implement something even better than what has happened in the EU to better protect the UK and the UK creators. But, um, you know, that remains to be seen. Obviously, we'll be working very hard in the next months and years to see how that plays out. 
when you say the sort of the weaker parts, is there something you have in mind? Because I know there's something I have in mind. <laughs> um, there are a range of different views on the copyright directive and where it's stronger and where it's weaker. The strength of the copyright directive is this clear statement that online content sharing service providers are liable and must seek an authorization. You know, and that, if we reflect back on when we started the process, that's what we set out to achieve. So, you know, in many ways, we got what we asked for. The way that it works, obviously, they've drafted a directive that will then be implemented into national law in different ways. So it says they have to make the best efforts. And and then I think that depending on how it's implemented into each national law, obviously, the words best effort will be transposed within how that country sees fit. But for me, that's a like a weak link and, a, and an opportunity to maybe lose the effect of Article 17, because YouTube could argue that they already make their best efforts with their special content ID technology. Yeah, you're completely right. Like best efforts. I actually read something recently. And again, I should really keep better tabs on my sources. But it was basically looking at all the different ways that different territories were um, translating best efforts. And it's, it's really difficult because, you know, every time you define something, you're then tied to that definition. So you need the definition to be perfect, which, you know, given the rate of change in the online market, by the time you, you know, as I said about the e-commerce director, by the time you actually get something down on paper, it could already be out of date. But I do think best efforts has, you know, it was, it was much, much debated and really fought over. And I think, you know, it will be interesting um, to see when the commission publishes uh, the guidance note on the implementation of Article 17 because there was a lot of um, criticism when the EU, uh, EU Commission published a consultation on the, on the implementation of Article 17. And within it, there were some kind of interesting phraseologies and sort of, they seem to be maybe overreaching the point of the guidance note. Um, so I know that there was a group of um, member states led by the French, I think, who basically wrote the commission and said, you're, you're overreaching on this, you know, you're not, you're not empowered to um, rewrite the legislation. You know, that's not within your remit. Um, but they didn't really touch on best efforts in that way. It was kind of not as helpful. The, the article on best efforts was really, um, I think it's gonna be problematic, but as I said, if we see the commission guidance, hopefully that will give a better steer you know, I think there are things that we could hope to see in terms of best efforts should be what any kind of competent organisation would do to protect their own rights and to protect their own sort of um, business model. So I think, you know, it should be quite a high bar on that basis, but whether or not it will be implemented as such, I think it is one of the risks and it was one of the sort of, as you put it, kind of a weakness of Article 17. Yeah, the, 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 the real uh, sort of elephant in the room stroke difficulty of um, whether Brexit has a, a, an, an impact on Article 17 and the, and the directive as a whole and indeed on copyright. I mean, I'm asking questions you very possibly can't answer without a crystal ball that's proven to work. But uh, nonetheless, do you have any sort of thoughts on the subject? In terms of copyright generally, it will be a while. You know, we... we EU law has been passed into UK legislation and I think, you know, 
the government's going to have enough on its hands without getting into copyright in the immediate term. Um, you know, I think as we start to diverge, where we see case law in particular kind of take us in different directions, on, in Article 17 is going to be a case in point. You know, there's a lot of Article 17, despite all my sort of saying it's finely balanced, there's a lot in it that's probably going to give rise to quite significant um, volumes of case law in the coming years ahead of us. So I think that's where you'll start to see um, things become more difficult. In the immediate term, no, I, I, can't, I just can't see how there's going to be an immediate, certainly not a negative impact. Because um, as I said, you know, our, our, we have a strong framework, we have a strong history of protecting rights. I guess where, it, you know, it is unfortunate that if you, when the director passed, Boris Johnson criticised it. Um, but, you know, the question is whether or not you've read it. But I don't foresee any sort of immediate change. It will be where we get, start to get divergence that we could start to see things just become more difficult. And I think, as I said, there's an opportunity for the government to kind of strengthen copyright. And, you know, we hear so much about the UK music industry and the value it brings to the economy and the value it brings in terms of soft power. So we can only sort of try and remind government and policymakers of that and make sure that when they look into the future post-Brexit, that they want to make sure that the UK music industry is protected and is properly equipped to be a really, you know, sort of vibrant and dynamic part of the economy. Yeah, for sure. Well, thank you so much, Ali. That was um, really, really interesting. And I think we covered quite a lot of ground there, actually. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe. Join us next time when we talk to Tom Gray from Gomez all about his campaign Broken Record and the streaming inquiry.